Good morning. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. The beauty of our text today shines brightest when we consider it against the dark backdrop it was written within. Isaiah 1 through 8 are not particularly positive. Imagine the scene. God's people are entangled in all kinds of idolatry. They have abandoned his way of righteousness and justice and have stepped outside of his protection. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Since Abraham, the Lord faithfully set apart a people for himself. Yet now the nation is fractured and the northern kingdom, Israel, is so far gone that they have allied with Syria to attack the southern kingdom, Judah. With Moses, the Lord delivered them out of bondage and gave them the covenant. Yet now God says, Of their worship, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In Joshua, the Lord conquered for them so that they would take the land. Yet now, faced with the threat of Israel and Syria, King Ahaz's plan is to ally with the foreign nation of Assyria. Isaiah is sent to tell him to trust the Lord, and the Lord himself invites Ahaz to ask him for a sign, to which Ahaz declines. To King David, the Lord had promised, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Yet now that throne is occupied by Ahaz, who's up there with the worst to ever sit on it. Second King tells us of Ahaz, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Further from 2 Chronicles, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. No wonder then... Isaiah says scathingly of Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a, paraphrase, unfaithful. Hear the Lord lament how his vine has gone astray. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more has there to do for my vineyard? What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness... But behold, an outcry. How will the Lord deal with such an unfaithful people? And going further, how then does he deal with us? How does he deal with our darkness? Surely we too have forsaken the Lord, run after idols. Surely it seems at times that our silver has become dross, our best wine mixed with water. Surely we too need the prodding of seven, nine. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And then even after hearing the call to trust in the Lord, we instead run to our own cleverly devised schemes. How does he deal with us? As we read, see this glorious truth with me that despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God graciously promises to set everything right by sending a king. Picking up the reading in chapter 8, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. 
Father, speak to us now through your word. God, I pray that you would cut through the familiarity of this passage, that we may see the wondrous grace of you sending Jesus. Father, I pray that you would convict us of our unfaithfulness, stir our gratitude for Christ this morning, stir our faith in you and your eternal, steadfast covenant love towards us. God, I pray that you would do that work in us even now. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As the uh, family drove back from Monroe this past Thursday, I saw at least three signs alluding to Isaiah 9. Our text is full of these Christmas time phrases that get clipped out and emblazoned across Christmas decor of all types, writ large across the billboard, <coughs> woven in script to Christmas lights, projected onto the house, and scrawled across your mug as you sip your coffee with your peppermint creamer. Our youngest ones memorize the words for their Christmas plays, and all rightly so, because they are indeed glorious reminders of the Messiah's coming. And yet we do risk missing out on the full benefit of these promises if we lose sight of the context in which they were written. In Isaiah 8, Isaiah prophesies using the river Euphrates as a metaphor for the Assyrian Empire. He says that the water will rise and overtake Jerusalem, rising even to the neck. Isaiah foretells the coming judgment of the Lord on Judah for her unfaithfulness, where they will be swept away to a foreign land in the purifying discipline of the exile. But the waters will rise only to the neck and a remnant will be preserved. Chapter 8 closes with a call to that remnant to trust in the covenant's promises of God. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. When it seems all the rest faithlessly run after mediums and other false gods, the remnant is called in faith to trust the promises of God, to the teaching and to the testimony. For their sin, the nation is going into the darkness, the anguish, the silence of exile, one and all. And the call of Isaiah 9 is the call to the remnant and to the wayward to remember the promise of God that lay on the other side of the coming judgment. These promises are not the earned reward of a good report card. Rather, they are the wondrous grace bestowed despite the unfaithfulness of his people. Look with me again to 8.22 and see how the rightful just judgment of gloom and darkness and anguish falls on the people. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. <laughs> but then see the repetition in verse 9, 1, and 2. And you see how 9, 1 opens, but, but, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great 
light. These promises are bestowed because of his covenant faithfulness and despite the unfaithfulness of his people. Going on, Isaiah singles out the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, two areas in the far north of the northern kingdom, Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These words are given sometime around 733 B.C. The whole of the northern kingdom would fall a few years later in 722 B.C. (coughs) But by 733 Zebulun and Naphtali are singled out because they were the first to fall and had already fallen. And then they were carved up by the Assyrians into three provinces. But get this, despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God graciously promises to set everything right. Zebulun and Naphtali are the first to fall, but then he promises that in the latter time he will make this area glorious. And perhaps Isaiah here is speaking more prophecy than even he understood. But the first to fall would be the first place to see the light of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew 4, immediately following Jesus' temptation by the devil. Verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew goes on to quote our passage. Though they are the first to fall under judgment, these regions will be the first to see the dawn of the new day when King Jesus' public ministry begins. That is a gracious promise. Um, before we go on to look at further gracious promises, you know I always have to have a moment where we nerd out on a bit of grammar. Um, someone last time I preached gave me permission to do that, so you can thank them for it. They said, just do that anytime you want, you can nerd out on the grammar. So uh, this portion of Isaiah is written around 733 B.C., still over 700 years before coming to fulfillment. But note how the verbs are written in the past tense as if they had happened already. Verse 1, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Verse 2, the people have seen a great light. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. And so on in the following verses. Alec Matir notes that this is Hebrew idiom for saying these promises are such a sure hope that once promised, it's as if they had already happened. Said differently, when the Lord makes a promise, you can bank on it because it's a done deal and he will bring it to pass. He will not change his mind. He's omnipotent and able to bring it to pass and he will be faithful to fulfill all his promises. And therefore, Isaiah writes in the past tense as if these things had already happened. The Lord, had <coughs> the Lord has promised to remove the gloom and anguish. He's promised to bring light into the darkness. He's promised to reverse the fortune of the northern lands. And in verse 3, 
He graciously promises that though the remnant seems so small, though the waters of Assyria would rise even to the neck, God will multiply the faithful again into a great nation. It calls to mind the great days of Solomon when the nation prospered and multiplied. Though the nation is about to experience a dreadful judgment and pruning, there's a future day for them when the faithful will be a plentiful people again. Going on, the Lord promises to turn their anguish into joy. Though they're about to enter into a time of desperate pain, the Lord promises that there is coming a day when his people will rejoice again. And it will be a joy as, the, the, as with the harvest, when the crop comes back good and the storehouses are full. And it will be like the joy of the victorious army when the spoil gets divided. Then, expanding upon why their darkness will turn to light and why their anguish is turned to joy, he goes on with the, verse, the first of three explanatory four statements. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The first statements evoke the language of God's people in Egypt prior to the Exodus. The yoke of the burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, all these will be broken. Again, dark times of judgment in the immediate future for Judah, but beyond those times there is coming a new exodus when God will again rescue his people from bondage and oppression. And he says that it will be done as on the day of Midian. It's another callback to his people's history as he here invokes that story from Judges 6 and 7 where Gideon's army is dwindled down from 32,000 men to 300 men so that Israel would not boast by saying, my own hand has saved me. And then they prevailed in the improbable victory because the Lord went before them and won the battle on their behalf. Here, Isaiah says, that kind of victory is coming again. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Continuing the military imagery of conquest, Isaiah says the coming victory will be so complete that every warrior's boot and garment will be burned, ushering in peacetime because of the coming resounding victory. The enemy of God's people will be utterly conquered so that peace will reign again. Verse 6. How will this great victory be achieved? How will this conquest come about? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. What? He's going to conquer by the birth of a child? Light will turn to darkness. Anguish will turn to joy. Remnant will multiply as a nation. Deliverance from the oppressor. And it's all going to come 
not by another warrior Gideon, but by the birth of a son? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God graciously promises to set everything right by sending a king. How will the Lord deal with such an unfaithful people? By the judgment of exile, yes, but ultimately by doubling down on his covenant promises to send a king in the line of David, a king who will come to set everything right. When all looked lost, we are reminded that his plan marches forward. When his people looked too far gone, we are reminded that the fulfillment of his covenant always relied on his faithfulness. Though their sinfulness was great, God promises to send Jesus. This reference to sending a son picks up a theme that's already begun in Isaiah 7. That was where the Lord invited Ahaz to ask him for a sign, and Ahaz refused. And on his refusal, the Lord says, Hear then, O house of David. Translation, if Ahaz doesn't want a sign, then I'm going to give a sign to everybody. There, the sign is this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. <coughs> now, in our text, we hear more of that son that will come. He's the promised king who will come to establish the throne of David forever. He will not be like Ahaz, leading God's people into ruin. Rather, Jesus will be the one to come and establish the reign of peace and justice from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus would be the ultimate king that God's people are waiting for. He will be the one to come, set everything right. The one who will be light in the thick darkness, who will turn anguish into joy, who will conquer once and for all, and who will reign forever over God's people. And then our text goes on to tell us more about the character of Jesus through the four names that he's given. First, Jesus will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is not used here in the way that we use wonderful, right? We use wonderful, and what we mean is that's really great. Like, uh, it's a wonderful life, or that was a wonderful pecan pie you brought to Thanksgiving, something like that that just means that was really good. Wonderful in the Bible almost always has divine connotations. The emphasis is on wonder, like the miraculous, that which is beyond human capability, as in Psalm 89, where the same word is used. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Or in Psalm 119, speaking of God's word, 
your testimonies are wonderful. They're beyond us. They're divine. More literally, the phrase here, wonderful counselor, could be translated a wonder of a counselor. And then counselor. Kings were expected to possess wisdom to be able to counsel wisely. So unlike Ahaz, who has foolishly sought alliance with the Assyrians instead of trusting in God, when the true and better king comes, he will possess all wisdom. He will be a wonder of a counselor, possessing divine wisdom. So in King Jesus, we have divine wisdom. Don't we see this, church? Don't we see the wisdom of Jesus all throughout the Gospels? Jesus says, but seek, the fir- seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. King Jesus' wisdom says one man, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Under the wise reign of King Jesus, if you have conflict with someone, then the first step is not to go and tell everyone else or to just sit and seethe. Rather, the wisdom of Jesus says to go to them and address it directly. So let us be reminded that King Jesus is the embodiment of divine wisdom. Going on, Jesus will be called Mighty God. El Gabor. The word for mighty, Gabor, evokes imagery of battle, of strength. He's the warrior God. As the same word is used in Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. In King Jesus, we don't have a king like Ahaz cowering in the face of threat. Rather, we have a king full of strength and courage and resolve. We have a king who, when his hour had come, set his face to Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaited him there. And though he prayed that the cup would pass when there was no other way, we have a king who took the cup of God's wrath in full. And we have a king that though he could command a host of angels to get him off the cross, did not, but endured the cross for the joy set before him. But further, our king was not just mighty in his death, but he was mighty over death, rising from the grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf, breaking the oppressive power of sin over us. And last, last, though Jesus came as a suffering servant, we know that El Gabor will come again in the future as a conquering king. On that day, at the full culmination of God's plan of redemption, he will finally put down all the rebellion of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and usher in everlasting peace. The third name he's given, and he shall be called Everlasting Father. Everlasting, or could be translated eternal This is not a king who has a lifespan of reign and then is over. Rather, because he is everlasting, his reign is from this time forth and forevermore. Of his reign, there will be no end. 
everlasting Father. Father is not used here in the Trinitarian sense. We know that the Son is God, but the Son is not the Father. Rather, just like the other names, he's, the other names he's given here, Father is used descriptively to describe the kind of king Jesus will be. He's the benevolent protector, the one who tenderly cares and protects the weak, the kind of shepherd who leaves the 99 to chase after the one. And as eternal protector, King Jesus' reign is marked by care for the downtrodden, the weak, and the broken. Note here how each of the first three names given to Jesus speak of his divinity. First, it was the divine wonder of wonderful counselor. Then he is mighty God. And here he is everlasting Father. We see in this how Jesus is both human, he's the son that is born, but he's also divine. He's wonder, he's God, he's everlasting. He's God in human flesh. Last, his name shall be called Prince of Peace. Prince here is the same Hebrew root word used for government early in 6 and then also in 7. It speaks to the executive function, his administration, the discharge of his duties, how he governs. What kind of ruler is King Jesus? How does he govern? It's a reign of peace. Shalom. More than just an absence of conflict, shalom speaks to completeness, to harmony, to prosperity, to flourishing. Again, not like Ahaz leading to ruin, but rather reigning in a manner that promotes complete flourishing. So when we read that the government is on Jesus' shoulder, it means that he bears the burden for flourishing. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The Prince of Peace will reign forever, bringing about a world no longer ransacked by the disorder of sin, but rather a world set aright and at complete shalom. That is the work of King Jesus, who Isaiah is foretelling here. So, what does this text have to say to us? Superficially, we might be tempted to look at a text like this and say, I got it. God promised Jesus to the people of Isaiah's day. He sent Jesus. Let's just pass out the cocoa, sing another Christmas carol, and get on our way. That's it. But... I think the text calls for a much deeper response than that. When we read glorious, glorious words, like for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, yes, let us rejoice. But let us remember why the child had to be born, why the son had to be given. Let us remember the darkness, the gloom, the anguish that made it necessary. 
When we consider the wondrous incarnation of Christ, the light coming into the world, let us remember the light had to come because of our darkness. The sun had to come because of our sin. The word had to become flesh so that by becoming flesh, he had a body. God the Son in a real human body that could be nailed to the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. We needed the baby in the manger so that we could have a king on a cross. So, yeah, rejoice. Be festive. Celebrate. He is the greatest gift the world has ever seen. But take a moment and be leveled. Brought low, that he had to come to rescue you and I because of our sin. Second, let us remember the wondrous, gracious covenant faithfulness of God. Take a moment to marvel at the lavish grace of a God who unilaterally fulfills the covenant. See the ridiculous mercy of the Father preserving a remnant so that his plan marches on in his timing, fulfilled in Christ the King, who sits on the throne that will be established forever. Reflect for a moment on how his steadfast love ensured his resolve to see the full plan of redemption through, and then take this in. If he has shown himself faithful to carry his plan through, then he will be faithful to you. You who are in Christ by faith and are part of his covenant people. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it through to the end. Though you face trials, though you face temptations, he will be faithful to ensure that no one, no thing can ever pluck you from his hand. His love toward you was never about your performance. It was always about his divine grace. If it was about his people's performance, they would have been cast out and his plan would have been done. But it was always about his divine grace. Third, let us remember that as Judah awaited the first coming of King Jesus, we now patiently await his Glorious second coming when the prophecy that we see here is fulfilled in full. We who have bowed the knee to Christ in faith live now under the reign of Christ. And he is on the throne reigning now over the world. But he has not yet set everything aright. He has not yet ushered in the full reign of Shalom establishing full justice and full righteousness in the world, but he will. He will. In the king's first coming, he came as a suffering servant, making atonement for our sin and holding out the offer of salvation to all who would believe. 
But in his second coming, he will come as that conquering king to put down everything in the world that persists in rebellion against him. So you can bow your knee to him now in faith and repentance, or you will bow your knee to him then in judgment. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm glad that you're here. I beg of you this this morning. Do not be one of those that misses out on the light of the world and instead persists in darkness. John 1 speaks to this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus, I beg of you, do not miss the light of the world. Do not fail to receive Jesus. To all who trust in him by faith, he gives the right to become children of God. Become his child today. You need to talk about that. Come talk to me. Talk to the person that brought you. Talk to your neighbor. But talk to someone. And do not miss out on the light of the world in the time where the whole Everything around you is celebrating that light. And church, I pray that in the busyness and the hustle and bustle of this season, that you will find time to reflect deeply, personally, on all the wonders of the incarnation, of all the wonders of God the Son becoming flesh. And may the Spirit of God use that to stir up in you a greater affection for King Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the grace that you show to your people. Father, as we think and reflect on this passage, Lord, I pray that you would humble us. God, I pray that you would give us, grow in us, fan in the flames in our hearts, that deep gratitude that you would send your son into the darkness of this world in order to die on a cross and rescue us. So, Father, I pray that you, even though we hear this so many times, Lord, I pray that you would give us great gratitude as we reflect on that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.